HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit. Two events in 2022 offering a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect. Details at pahempsummit.com. Welcome to Spill and Dish, a new podcast from the Specialty Food Association. Founded in 1952, SFA is the leading trade association and source of information about the $170 billion specialty food industry. We champion the food producers, retailers, and other buyers who make up the specialty food world. Each episode, we want to share the stories behind the products made and sold by our members who are helping shape the future of food. You can listen and discover the inspiration, recipe, craft, culture, ingredients, and production methods that help answer the question, what makes specialty food special? I'm today's host, Gretchen Van Esselsten, Education Director at SFA. We're excited to bring you today's episode and so happy to be working with Heritage Radio Network, a not-for-profit podcast network covering the world of food, drink, and agriculture, and expanding the way eaters think about food. I'm here today with Jill Giacomini-Bash, the co-owner and CMO of Point Reyes Farmstead Cheese Company. Hi, Jill. I'm so excited to be speaking with you today. Hey, Gretchen. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Good. Um, I wish we were in Point Reyes together today, <laughs> eating some of your Bay Blue. Which oh, is, my, is that your favorite? That is my favorite. Well, you, um, I could tell you what I love about it, but would you tell folks a little bit about Bay Blue? Because I love sure, it so much. Sure, sure. So Bay Blue, a lot of people... Uh, misunderstand the name and call it baby blue, which, oh. which in a way it is our baby, you know. Uh, so the big sister is original blue, our flagship cheese that we built the company on. Uh, we started in 2000 making original blue, and it was in 2012 when we added a second blue to our our product line, and it's named Bay Blue after Tamales Bay, which is a bay that our farm sits adjacent to, and. Um, it really represents kind of the coastal climate of where we have farmed since 1959 and where we make uh, our artisan cheese. And, and Bay Blue is, is akin to a Stilton. So it's, it's got a, a beautiful natural rind or crust. It's got a fudgy, dense texture. It has layers of flavor, um, kind of starts out savory, kind of got a little bit of a mushroomy, earthy note, and then it kind of dives into a yeastiness, almost like a toasted, malted flavor, and then the finish is sweet. 
uh, we describe it as salted caramel. Um, and the beautiful veining, you know, throughout it, it's like more pocketed rather than, um, you know, streamlined uh, veining. And so it's just got this beautiful aesthetic to it. And, uh, you know, people love it. It's a cheese coarse cheese. I mean, it, it's beautiful to, it, to add it into, um, you know, salads and risottos and pastas and so forth. But um, it really stands, you know, like alone on a cheese course, on a cheese board, pairing it with you know, sweeter wines or maybe a, an earthy Pinot Noir. Um, I love it with a tawny port, you know, mm. as an after dinner, you know, delicacy um, with a little, you know, maybe some toasted pine nuts or something kind of alongside of it. It's all you need. You need that makes dessert. It's a beautiful, beautiful representation as dessert. Really? Or, or dinner or really yeah, well, even, anyway. even so, breakfast, so you know. So why do you love it so much? I just, it, I always think of sort of the heritage and the place that it comes from. As yeah. you said, it really, you know, represents that. Uh, area and I'm just a huge blue cheese freak, uh-huh. and I feel like it. Um, as you said, Stilton is one of my faves, but it, it just has that something extra. I just, yeah. just adore it. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, you know, for I'm curious about sort of your background yourself, and you know that your um, the other folks who work there. So, how long has the brand been around? We launched in 2000, so 20, almost 22 years. It was August 1st of 2000 that we made our first vat of Point Reyes Original Blue. And uh, and were you a cheesemaker before that, or was that no, your first foray? No, not at all. This was a, a chapter two in my business career. Um, but you could say that dairy was in our blood uh, because uh, we, we started the company on our family farm. And uh, it's the farm, it's the property where my sisters and I were raised, uh, I should back up a little bit. My parents, Bob and Dean, bought our farm in 1959. Uh, and my dad's dream uh, was to own his own dairy farm. He had been raised on his family's dairy. And uh, after college, was able to, with my grandfather's assistance, uh, purchase the property and uh, start dairying on his own. Uh, and it was a very small, you know, regional dairy farm, you know, very representative of, of traditional dairies in the area. So we sit about an hour north of San Francisco, right on. The, alongside the Pacific Ocean, um, right on Highway 1, as a matter of fact, the Shoreline Highway. And um, you know, it was home to a lot of um, uh, small traditional dairies, uh, maybe 30 or so um, through the, the early you know, transition you know, into the 1900s. And a lot of Italian and Swiss immigrants came to the region. Um, my great-grandfather was one of them and started dairying in the area. So it was in my dad's blood. And so he couldn't wait to own his own farm. And uh, like I said, he and my mom bought our property in 1959. And for the first 40 years, it was a fluid milk milk dairy only. So the truck driver would, you know, arrive every morning and load up the tankers and, you know, drive away with uh, the fruit of my father's labor, mm. you know, him and his small staff. And uh, it was frustrating for the over the years for my father to see um, the local creamery, the processor, Turn it into all the value-added, you know, hard dairy products, and and present them to the Bay Area marketplace, you know, under their brand. My dad always wanted, you know, to get that recognition, you know, for the sure. hard work himself, and he wanted a brand that could really represent not only our family's legacy in dairy in the community, but the community itself. He was so proud of having been born and raised uh, in Point Reyes, um, the small local. 
um, town uh, where we're from. And uh, he just unfortunately never had the time or the resources to put towards mm. it. And so, you know, fast forward, you know, he has four daughters, you know, to the farmer's dismay, no sons to, <laughs> you know, kind of, you know, be at his hip, you know, to, to teach, you know, all of the trades and the, and the, you know, to gain the interest of the dairy farm, you know, from childhood on. Um, and my parents really pushed us away from the farm as young kids, which was really hmm. a luxury for us that they said, we don't want you to be burdened with, you know, the responsibility that the dairy has to be your future, has to be your destiny. Um, it's here if you want it, but if you don't, go fly, you know, go do do what's of interest to you. So my sisters and I did. We, we left for college and then ended up pursuing different, um, you know, sectors of business. Uh, I had a sister who her background was in, in financial real estate and investments and banking. I had a sister who was in sales and more on the operational side of, of the wine industry. I had a sister who she and her husband owned a restaurant. So her background was in culinary business. My specific in, uh, area of expertise was, was always in advertising and marketing. So, you know, we all left. None of us pursued agriculture or food manufacturing or food science or distribution of specialty foods, none of that. So mm -hmm. it was in the late 90s that my parents really presented their dilemma, which was that they were thinking of, you know, approaching the road to retirement and what that would look like. And it would be, if it was off the farm, it would be dependent on the sale of the farm to fund their retirement. Or it was, you know, like, huh. If the girls were ever going to come back, we still have a little bit of energy left to work alongside them to build something more than what the the the, the dairy operation had had been at the time. Cool. And um, it was through these conversations, series of conversations, that we thought, huh, wouldn't it be great to take my dad's dream to create a finished dairy product on the farm and brand it as our own, to take that to a reality with us developing that brand from scratch. And doing it together as a family with our parents alongside. We knew we had so much to learn because even though we had been raised on the dairy, we were not farmers. You know, we didn't have that, that ag science background. Um, and we also had a lot to learn about, you know, just food production and what that would, would entail. Um, so upon further research and, and looking to what was being produced in the community right outside our door, it was, you know, there was this burgeoning artisan cheese movement that had really hit Northern California. And we started talking to some of these cheesemakers, and we couldn't believe not only how resourceful they were willing to be for us, um, but how much how encouraging they were, and and how vital um, you know that their businesses had become so quickly, and how they were really welcoming new uh, participants, you know, in this you know this movement, this cheese movement in in the North Bay. And uh, so I'm referring to you know Peggy and Sue, the owners and founders of Calgary Creamery. Sure. Um, uh, the Callahan family at Bellwether Farms, mm. uh, Laura Chanel, uh, obviously we know Laura Chanel Goat Cheese, uh, and Mary Keene up at Cypress Grove. Mm. Um, and all women, it's never lost on what me that there was a group it? of women yeah. that were saying, yes, join our community and we will mentor you. We will, we will teach you. You will learn from our wins and you will learn from our mistakes and, you know, we'll welcome you into the fray. 
So that was all the encouragement we needed, you know? Absolutely. So we quit We quit the day jobs, mm-hmm. and uh, we dove in. We got paid in cheese for the first several years. I, I, oh, that boy. is not a joke, uh, by the way. Uh, child care and uh, my mom. My mom ran a daycare because I should tell you that we were all, you know, raising or having babies at the same mm-hmm. time, which is one of the reasons why I decided to, to, to jump into this personally is that I needed more flexibility um, in my life in order to to uh, to pursue, you know, being a mom and working at the same time. And the entrepreneurship, um, you know, concept was what really just like synced it for me. I thought, oh my gosh, here I've been been doing a lot of brand marketing and advertising and mostly in high tech in Silicon Valley for 10 years. And I thought this would be a really great way to start from scratch and a product that I can really get behind, you know, a product that I can also be a consumer of. You know, meant a lot to me. Amazing. So um, cool. Yeah. So we and- dove in together as a team. And what you said um, resonated with me about the, you know, a farmer thinking about sons, but, you know, the daughters who took on this business. Mm -hmm. And I know um, being women, going through women-owned certification can be kind of a, um, it's a lot of paperwork and it's quite a bit of work. Yeah. But um, has it been worth it for you and your company? Absolutely. But I will say it was worth it because of what we've made of it. Mm. So we went through the process in late 2018. We became certifi- certified uh, women-owned through the WeBank uh, mm-hmm. uh, organization in 2019. And we immediately knew that we wanted to include it, you know, in all of our marketing, including our packaging. Every cheese label has that right front and center on the on the front of the package. You know, whether it's the wheel or the wedge or the box, you know, it's all over our website. Um, we've done a lot of press and education to other female-owned businesses, sure. you know, trying to promote this um, as an advantage uh, for your business. And it's really, it's really been great. I can't tell you how many times people have come up to us and said, Hey, I was looking at your cheese versus another. And I picked yours because it's, it proudly said women owned right on the, on the front. And I was like, that's right. That's why we're doing it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I love that. And so other than kind of getting paid in cheese for the first few years, what were some of the obstacles that you might've faced in bringing your brand to market? Um, well, we launched at a really um, you know, opportunistic time in the the American artisanal cheese, um, you know, kind of coming of age. Mm. You know, it was still young enough that retailers and distributors and chefs were looking for um, well-made, high-quality, handcrafted artisanal cheese coming from the U.S., um, there was also, and it was because there was a lack of it. There was a lack of supply at the time. Um, there was also some new subs, um, subsidies um, uh, coming in, or excuse me, not sub- tariffs coming in um, on some of the European cheeses that were making them more cost prohibitive. Um, and because of some subsidies in Europe going into the manufacture of some of the European cheeses, they were coming into the U.S. at a, at a lesser quality. So all these things were happening at the same time. So retailers and chefs and distributors opened their arms to us. They were so excited to come hear our story, to, you know, set us an appointment. We could come and present who we were, talk about our brand, you know, build that reputation. And that was actually even before we had cheese for the, ready for them to taste. We were, you know, crisscrossing the country telling our story. And then folks would say, okay, I'm so excited to try your product. You know, they'd be looking for our cooler at our feet. We're like, oh, no, no, we don't have any cheese yet. We'll, we'll have it in a couple months and we'll send it to you. <laughs> so there was really an excitement. There was an enthusiasm uh, for our brand even before we were ready to go to market. Um, 
but it was a function of the time. And, and we weren't the only ones coming out with a, a new artisanal blue cheese. You know, we were, we were amongst, um, you know, many, many wonderful, um, you know, fellow friendly competitors that we all came to, 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 to the market together. And I think it helped to build the demand for a better quality blue cheese being made in the U.S. at the time. Fantastic. Um, I wanted to ask about um, a project that I've heard that you are involved in, which is the Victory Cheese Project. Mm, Would mm-hmm. you tell me what that is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Victory Cheese was started by a group of, um, you know, cheese uh, professionals um, at the start of COVID when they saw how hard our cheese community was being hit, um, mostly because of the loss of the food service business. So as mm. restaurants across the country shut down, so did the supply chain going into that segment of our industry. And so many, you know, small cheese makers rely on regional and even national, um, uh, you know, restaurants and, 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 um, institutional, um, buyers of cheese for food service. Um, to keep afloat. And with that supply or that demand being cut off at its knees, I mean, you know, 50% of our business was food service at the time really? at the beginning of, of COVID. And that business went away literally mm. overnight. We had some food service distributors that actually, you know, on the East Coast, all the way across the country that were calling us, asking us if we would take back product. I'm like, we can't take mm. back product. You know, we'll help you sell it to a, uh, you know, a retail, you know, um, targeted distributor, but we can't take it back across the country. I mean, it was just, the situation was dire. And that trickled down very, very quickly um, to the the cheese producers themselves. And so there's a, there was a movement um, in the spring of 2020 um, from a group of really dedicated cheese professionals that wanted to help out in any way possible. So they came together and they created the Victory Cheese Movement, which was really you know a, a way of kind of uh, marketing uh, or remarketing the cheese community. Um, telling consumers, telling retailers to buy American cheese, support your local cheesemaker because you're supporting local economies, you're supporting local farms, you're supporting, you know, uh, a movement that's much bigger than just, you know, some individual businesses and their bottom line. And uh, so there was, they, they spread the word and they've got some really wonderful, well-named um, chefs behind it. Um, they got ACS, the American Cheese Society, our, our trade association, to support it. And now this actu- actually Victory Cheese today now lives inside the umbrella of the American Cheese Society. Um, but a lot of cheese retailers and cheese producers started um, uh, funding fundraising programs through the sale of either gift packs or specific cheeses um, and giving back to this movement that would promote um, the education of of American cheese sales as well as education um, to support small cheesemakers that maybe needed to build a website or dive into an e-commerce program, you know, just to get build awareness for what it is they were doing so that they could increase their their sales to make up for the lack of those, those restaurant sales that had gone away. Um, so we started a gift pack called Victory Cheese, um, where we give 15% of all of the sales of every Victory Cheese gift pack uh, to the American Cheese Society, directed towards the support and education of small cheesemakers to keep them alive and keep them vital for the future. So we need our cheesemakers. The cheesemakers, you know, we are the, the you know, the the soul of the American farm movement, you know, in that, you know, we work with dairies, whether we are farmstead or, or we're buying local area milk. Um, and we bring kind of the flavor 
of, you know, regionality, you know, to market, you know, and what's so wonderful is that cheese can be made in a small rural town, but be sold in New York City, you know, and, and it tells the story of that farm, of that community, you know, to, to people that buy the cheese and, you know, on the East Coast all the way, you know, miles and miles away from where the cheese was produced, but yet the story and the legacy of what's happening in that community is getting spread out and in, in, in building awareness. So it's, it's just, Everything needs to happen through cheese, as I say. <laughs> Excellent point. And I love that name, um, Victory Cheese, just I know. evokes the Victory I know. Gardens I know. Uh, movement, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, this is such a fun conversation. I'm having a ball here. Um, what would you want people to know about your brand that they might not know? Um, well, in, in addition to the fact that we produce the best quality cheese, best tasting cheese. We have a full array of breadth of style of cheeses mm. in our product line from a farmer's cheese to a traditional aged Gouda to, you know, the blues that people, you know, were, you know, most recognize associated with our brand. Um, but that it's not about, I have to say, it's not even necessarily about the cows that we care for so deeply on our farm and our farm, our sustainable farming practices that, you know, which is where the the health and well-being of the cow and, and, and the happiness of our animals starts, you know, and, and how we environmentally care for our, our, our farm and our land. Um, but it's about the people. Mm-hmm. We have the best employees around. I mean, they are Amazing. loyal, they're dedicated, they care about, you know, the farm, they care about the cows, they care about, you know, every wheel of cheese that's produced, every wedge of cheese that's packaged, every box that gets shipped to either a consumer or to a chef. Um, I mean, we just, we couldn't do it without our employees. I mean, we really look at them as family and we have great um, uh, employee loyalty that just tells me that we're doing something right. You know, we're taking care of our employees so that they in turn will take care of us. And, you know, we're going through this, you know, crazy, you know, chaotic change in our in our industry together, you know. And, and that means all the world to to my two sisters, Lynn and Diana, and myself, um, more than they could ever possibly know. But but hopefully we 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 will continue to go through this this journey together. Wonderful. So we're almost out of time, but before we go, we would love to have you participate in our segment. Take five, which is five questions for you. Okay. But first, let's pause for a break. Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, with two events in 2022 that offer a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect, while providing an occasion to network and grow the businesses that comprise the region's hemp industry. The Pennsylvania Hemp Summit aims to increase the Commonwealth's shared knowledge and resources in order to inspire innovative investments and to form transformative partnerships in the hemp industry. Join us for our upcoming trade show, reception, and investor pitch competition in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on April 26th to 27th. And again on November 8th and 9th for educational sessions, a trade show, and reception. Register to attend or get involved by exhibiting or sponsoring. Details at pahempsummit.com. All right, Jill, here are your five questions for our final segment, Take Five. So this is our quick sort of lightning round. And the first question is, what is your favorite thing about the specialty food industry? Oh, the cheese. 
<laughs> Followed by the people. <laughs> exactly. She, and the cheese people. Mm-hmm. All even even go. better. Yep. And what's your biggest gripe about the industry? Oh, gosh. That, um, that everything isn't, you know... Uh, as readily available as you want it. You know, I love all the different foods and products and categories and you just, you just want to be able to to try it all and you just, you can't, you know, but I, I I do, I do, I do a pretty good job. (laughs) (laughs) If you weren't running this business, what do you think you might be doing? Cooking, cooking. So, so definitely related to, to, you know, manufacturing, I would definitely be on the cooking side. I absolutely love it. It's my biggest hobby. In a, it, would you be a, in a restaurant situation or just cooking for yourself uh, and your family? I probably would, but by now I probably would have retired from that because the stress would get to me. <laughs> oh, I, I hear you having done it myself. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, what is one piece of advice you'd give to a new specialty food business? Oh gosh, that's actually pretty easy because I feel like I say this all the time. I try to, I try to always, you know, be out there mentoring um, small startups and talking to to young companies. And this is to pay it forward because it was done for us, you know. And so I want to continue um, the that that service to others. But um, sample, 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 sample. The best marketing, the best use of your marketing dollar is sending your samples out and getting samples in, you know, consumers' mouths, trade folks' mouths, the media's mouths, and you can never not spend enough on sampling. Um, and and I just see, I see some folks always say, oh, it's so expensive, it's so or it's so expensive to 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 ship the product, or, you know, for freight or whatever, or to participate in a trade show or a festival. It's like, no, that's the best use of your marketing dollar, you know, is to definitely get the product out there. Fantastic. And the last question is, how do you define specialty food? Food that's that's authentic, that makes people happy. Oh, great answer. <laughs> so a huge thanks to you, Jill, and to all of our listeners for joining us today. You can find out about this show at specialtyfood.com and heritageradionetwork.org. And remember to follow wherever you get your podcasts. Come back often to get to know the people like Jill who are shaping the future of food. Special thanks to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. This is Spill and Dish, a Specialty Food Association podcast.